Good morning, church. Hope you all are doing well. If you will, um, just join me in a word of prayer to ask God for help as, as we look to his word. Our Father, we just recognize that you are our only hope. And so God, as we look to your word, I pray you would be with us by your spirit and um, as your preacher, what I have not, give me and um, help me to communicate well and help us to, to see Jesus and savor him. And it's in his name and for his sake we pray. Amen. So if you have your copy of God's word or uh, a device with the Bible on it, turn it on or flip to Psalm 11. Psalm 11. We're going to look at God, our refuge. And first thing, we're just going to go ahead and read it. Psalm 11. To the choir master of David. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend their bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds and the upright shall behold his face. Put your eyes on the very first sentence in chapter one for a second. I mean, in uh, verse one, it says, in the Lord, I take refuge. Now we know of all of scripture, there is no one righteous and all have sinned. So how can even David say the Lord is my refuge? How can sinners say that God is their refuge? I mean, that's a question that, that we have to consider as we think about God being our refuge, right? So um, in past, uh, last year, Justin went through Galatians, and he mentioned often about how Christianity is about news, right? Christianity is based on news because it's something that has been done, right? So it's this proclamation of something that has been done, right? And so if you just Think about how can even David or how can sinners say, God is my refuge. God is a hiding place. God, who is holy, is a, a good place for me to be as a sinner. How can we say that, right? Well, when we look back at, at Adam and Eve in the garden and, and Satan tempts them by, you know, getting them to believe that God's not really good, that, he, you know, his, he didn't really say this or he didn't mean this or what he really meant was this. And, of course, they ate of the fruit inaugurating the fall of all creation, separating all humanity and all creation from the most important relationship is to God, right? So this separation has happened. And of course, we know from the very beginning of time, it was all, it's been said today that it's always been the plan that God would redeem his people. The fall was, was somehow ordained by God, and he always planned to die in the place of his sheep, of his people. So that's always in focus, and this is always in focus, even, even as we read David saying, God is my refuge, right? Because God looks at Abraham, and he says, I will make a nation out of you. I will basically bring redemption out of you, is what he did. And so that, that we have to keep that in mind as we even see David here saying, 
man, God is my refuge because he's chosen Israel, right? He's, he's brought them out of, out of bondage and, and into the promised land, and he's constantly patient, and he's, he's chosen to have mercy and to have grace on Israel. So David knows this, and he says, God is my refuge. God is my refuge. But see, you know, naturally, though, we, we're not prone to, to, like, drift into God. That's not naturally how we work as sinners. We're naturally prone to drift away. You know, just just drifting away slowly. And so we drift away from these truths, from gospel truths. We just naturally drift away from them. And so then we get in this tireless cycle of forgetting that it has been done, that the gospel is news, that it has been accomplished. Righteousness has been fulfilled in Jesus in our place. And the penalty that we must pay has been paid by Jesus and it's been given to us, been given to us. We forget that, and then we end up in this tireless cycle of thinking somehow we gotta like please God. Somehow we gotta do this ourselves. And this is an endless cycle, right? Of us just drifting away, remembering the truths, drifting away, remembering the truths. But we don't just drift away from gospel truths about what he's done. We drift away from even thinking about who God is, right? In his sovereignty and in his righteousness and in his goodness and in his love. I am prone to, as an extrovert to drift away from my, my homework and end up hanging out with the guys all night, right? I mean, we, like naturally, like we're just prone and we just drift away from really what we're supposed to be doing. Like it's just kind of how we work. And so in this psalm, what we have really is David is being tempted to drift away from, from what God has done and who God is here. And so as we look at this, Today, what we're going to consider, we're going to look at this psalm in two parts, right? This growing sense of despair and then this restoration of confidence. And out of this psalm, we're going to pull out three truths. And then I just have two takeaways based upon what we find in the scripture. Okay, does that, does that seem clear? I just wanted to, to sum that up to be clear. So put your eyes on um, verse one. In the Lord, I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? So we're... we're, we're why is David writing this psalm first off? And, and who is saying this to David, right? Well, um, when you think about who's writing this to David, you can think about it two ways. This can be an outside person, like someone advising David, like, yo, I'm noticing this, and here's what I got for you. You better do this. Or David could just be having this inner wrestling within himself. Like in Psalm, uh, in psalm 42, 43 it is, where he says, Hope in the Lord. He tells his soul, hope in the Lord. So maybe this psalm could be that kind of thing where, where David's just in Hebrew poetic language seeming like a conversation, but it could be just his inner soul wrestling as he even notices things. So um, we, we can consider both today as we think about this psalm. So he says, in the Lord, I take refuge. In the Lord, I take refuge. And when David's thinking about the Lord, you can think that he's knowing that he's thinking about the great I am. Right. The God who has always been, who has always planned to redeem his people, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God who built a nation, Israel, in, in the worst case scenario in slavery in Egypt. Like the worst possible place to be if you want to grow a nation is in slavery in Egypt. And God grew a nation in that. God delivered them from Egypt by like in the middle of a sea. Right. God tore down the walls of Jericho and just gave them the promised land. This is the Lord in whom I have refuge. I mean, David could be thinking about these things. The God who always keeps his promise. So 
this is this is kind of what you can think about when, when David's saying, it's in the Lord I take refuge. Now, how can you say to me? So this whole point, in the Lord I take refuge, is like the crutch of everything that happens in this psalm. So he's like, because God, this God is my refuge, how can you say to me, and then what we're going to look at, right? So he says, you need to flee to your mountain, right? So he's saying, the Lord is my refuge. Why would I flee? What need is there to flee, right? So like David's being tempted to distrust God in general, to distrust that God is a, is a refuge. Like this, this person who is advising David, or maybe David is feeling this in himself, like, uh, yes, I know that about God, but I just, I need to find another refuge. Like God is a refuge, but I need to do something else. Like I need to flee. Like I need to make something happen. So let's come back to that as we look at why David may be wrestling with fleeing or, or why this person is telling David to flee. And look at verse two. So uh, he says, for the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot. And in the dark at the upright in heart, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? So we can also look at this two ways. This is a literal like armed force and death is on all sides of David. Or it can be like a metaphorical like, dude, everything is terrible. Like, I mean, I don't know if you're going to die, but everything is absolutely terrible. Like people, the, the wicked people here are killing the upright in heart and upright in heart. We know not to be perfect people. David is not a perfect person, but this is simply people on whom God has had mercy, that God has had favor, and they love God and they want to do his will, and they do that imperfectly. Simply, this is, the, this is what he's meaning by upright. The people who love God are getting killed, and the, the wicked people who do this, they get no punishment, you know? And when he says, uh, he's like, dude, death is on all sides, or everything's terrible. You need to flee. Like, you need to flee. And so um, as you look at like uh, the wicked that bend their bow or they have fitted their arrows to shoot in the, in the upright at heart, I mean, this can be like, when you think about this language, like to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart, I mean, normally you do things in the dark because you don't want to be seen. So maybe it's, it's friends of David. Maybe like uh, this could be people under Saul, under King Saul's era that are trying to act like friends, or maybe they're trying to get David to escape so they can have some kind of like a, accusation against him. Maybe that's why they're telling him to flee, or maybe they really are part of Saul's plan to, to kill David. Like whatever's going on, they obviously don't want people to know about it, or they're acting like friends and then in the dark stabbing them in the back. So there, there's this, this situation that's going on here. And so David inside, I like to think about this as David like wrestling with himself, like like this inner fear saying, dude, you need to escape. You need to escape. So this so the first part of this psalm as we as we continue right here is this this growing sense of despair. Right. And, and in verse three, you see, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Now, this language here, if the foundations are destroyed are literally like it's it's like the very institutions or the very things that keep a society moving forward. You know, right and wrong, morals, laws, justice. These things seem to be like disintegrating. People, the wicked are killing the upright. Like the wicked are killing the godly. Society is falling apart. David, I know that, that this is your God, but dude, you need to escape. Like in this language, in this poetic language, like they bend their bow. Like I remember me and my brother, when, when my mom and dad were building their house, building their house, we would shoot uh, birds with BB guns. And... 
Their only escape is to fly away. Like that's their only tactic. They can't attack me. They got to fly away, right? So that's kind of this language. It's like, like you see this poetic language. It's like, dude, the wicked are killing the upright and you're only like a bird. You need to escape. You need to fly. So this tempted, he's like, there's this temptation to doubt God, to doubt that the Lord is really a safe place, that the Lord is really my protector, that the Lord is really in control of all this, that the Lord is like ordaining all things on his throne. This temptation to like flee, like God's not enough. I need to seek another refuge by going away, right? My refuge in the Lord, but that's obviously like like David's language here is like, but my refuge is in the Lord. So why would I do those things, right? But there's this growing sense of despair inside of David or in this person. And so just one truth that we can take out of this is that like by nature, like we are inclined to drift away, that we are inclined to drift away from God. As David like looks at these situations and the the godly people are being killed, it's like the society in general, just like right and wrong doesn't exist anymore. The very foundations that keep a society and a community going doesn't exist. And he's tempted just to escape and flee. And that's just naturally what happened. It's like all this is going wrong. I must I need to do something. I need to find a different escape as if the Lord's not good enough. Maybe it's like this lack of control David feels or this just lack of trust in God. This lack of like faith that God's going to keep a promise that that he's made to David in past. Right. Uh, you can even look at some examples. Let's look at some examples from Israel's past of fleeing from God. Think about Adam and Eve as they ate of the fruit. What did they do? They fled. They tried to cover it up with fig leaves. And of course, we know that's our inclination. I mean, it, I mean, it's such a correlation is that. Okay, God's my refuge, but things get out of control, so I need to find another refuge. Just, I just need to find a refuge that's maybe more tangible, that maybe feels better, that I can see it. It seems to have more weight, right? Adam and Eve do that. They, they sin against God. They know they've done wrong, and so they run, and then they try to fix the problem. They try to fix. They know they've been obedient, disobedient with God. How about King Saul? He saw his dream of this dynasty being passed on to his son, Jonathan, crumbling before his eyes. Because the people preferred David over Jonathan, and even Jonathan had selfless love for David. And, and so King Saul took matters into his own hands. He fled. The, the obvious will of God is that it's David, but he fled that and tried to kill David, right? What about Jonah? He fled from God's will over and over because, I mean, he, he literally cried out, like, I don't want you to forgive them. They don't deserve your forgiveness, like, I mean, this is paraphrase. I'm sorry, but like they they're a pagan nation and they don't just he's dripping in self-righteousness and fleeing from the will of God. And I just want to make one point here in all of these situations. Guess whose will was accomplished? God's. And Adam and Eve's tipping to cover up their sinfulness, tipping to cover up and fix what they've done. It's not enough. And so God kills an animal. Right. And covers them with with this animal skin, insinuating that the problem is going to be solved with blood, with bloodshed. Right. And with with King Saul, we know King David ended up king. With Jonah, the nation repented. Right. God is the refuge like God's will will be accomplished even when Israel rebelled. Even if David was to flee to the mountain here. 
That's what the Bible teaches us is that God's will will overcome us and sinfulness and the fall and the cross of Jesus Christ is an example of that. Where he overcame our sin, overcame the separation that was that separated us from God. So we see just here in this natural thing of David looking at the events of this society just crumbling. And he's tempted to flee somehow, maybe find another refuge. Maybe find another refuge. So we're so truth number one, just out of this this first this first like growing sense of despair, is that um, by nature, just I'm just repeating this. By nature, we're inclined to drift away from God, right? I hope you guys see that there. So now the psalm kind of turns, and we have this part two is kind of like this restoration of confidence in the Lord, right? So now we're going to actually talk about this refuge who is God. And why David doesn't flee here. In verse 4, he says, The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. So the Lord, it, like, like, just think about this. In the Lord I take refuge. How are you going to tell me to flee? Like, my God is Yahweh. I don't need to flee. For he is in heaven. And he in his throne, or he is in his temple, and his throne is in heaven. I mean, this language is literally like just, just talking about God's sovereignty, that ultimately all things are governed and controlled by God. Like they're all controlled by the providences of God. Whether whether government or in all like big world, like universe type thing, all the way down to your very life type. So, like and, and, and one thing he's talking about is like, yes, all this is happening. Like it's like society is crumbling before my eyes. The wicked get away with evil. The godly die. Yet he's God is not changed by any of that. God is in control of all of that, actually. Like God is not affected or changed by society's lack of love for him or his people. And so David's just declaring that my refuge, he's in heaven and he's on his throne where he's ruling. And I don't understand all of this, but I know that he's in control and he is my refuge. He is my refuge. Like uh, Calvin says about this verse, God rules and works according to his eternal purpose, even through events that seem to contradict or oppose, oppose his rule. His abs- this is his absolute right to do all things according to his own good pleasure. I mean, this is kind of what David is seeing. Like, I don't get this. Yes, it's out of my control, but not God's. And he is my refuge, right? So point, truth number two, just in this psalm, is that God is sovereign. This is what David's clearly, like, we see, like, okay, I'm prone to drift away from God. But now he's, he's claiming this confidence, but God is sovereign. I don't get this, but is out of my control, not God's, right? God is sovereign. And then look at um, just the last verse, the last uh Clause in verse four, his eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. And and this is literally speaking of that it may seem like God is inactive and that he doesn't care. Right. But he is like seeing it all from the very actions of the universe, from the very actions you do all the way to your heart, all the way to the things you think, all the way to the motives of the of why you do the things you do and the inclinations you have. The things that no one knows about you, God knows. And he sees it, and he's intimately actually acquainted with it. And when it says, like, his eyes see, but his eyelids test, 
like the word isn't meaning like God's using some other type of himself to see something. It's just it's just poetic language. Like almost if you were like his eyes see everything. But like like, you know, when you squint to see something better, you know, just to see something. It's like God like that, like God sees everything, but he's testing and he's looking at every person in great detail. Like every frame, like every bend in your frame, everything you think, just just all oh, like that's kind of what he's talking about here. And then verse five, the Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Again, it may it's like it may seem like God doesn't see what's going on here. But he sees and he examines the wicked and the righteous. Like he's, he's currently doing that now even as we speak. Right. And he so examines in such a way that he distinguishes between righteous and wicked. And this is a scary thought for sinners like you and me. Like this can't be like, oh, that's not good, brother, right? But like, and, and one thing is, and we're going to talk about that, but and one thing is that like he may not immediately judge the wicked, but he, but like he knows and, and, and his holiness excludes any love for those who love wickedness. Like in his holiness, he has no love for people who love to do evil. And if you're like me, you're thinking that is not good. Right. I mean, we're kind of thinking that, no, I haven't technically killed someone, but I have a lot of sin in my life. Like I have a, I do a lot of things I wish I wouldn't do. I think a lot of things I wish I did not think. I feel a lot of ways I wish I didn't feel. You know, I do things I wish I wouldn't do this type of thing. And so we get to verse six. And like he's building this right. Just just track with me as, as you see David building like God is sovereign and this is. Like, this is who he is, and this is kind of what he does type thing. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. That's some deep, like, heavy language there. Like, basically this. God tests, and he sees, and the hour of vengeance is coming. Hour of vengeance is coming. We see this stuff like rain. Imagine like on a on a nice weather day, it's kind of like seems like man, things are too calm, and then the rain comes, you know. And in this this fire and sulfur language, um, you can think like Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, in, in Matthew twenty four, when he says like when he's talking about the end times, and he says it's going to be like the days of Noah, or it's going to be like Sodom and Gomorrah. We're all just enjoying life. The wicked are enjoying their evil. The, the the injustice goes on. It's like they're enjoying themselves. It's all calm, and all of a sudden, bang! The doors close. The flood happens. All is destroyed. Or bang! Like the righteous are taken out, and, and and fire and sulfur destroys everything. Like judgment is coming. And it, and this is just this language, kind of like let it rain. The scorching wind he's talking about is is um like in Israel. There can be a wind that's just so hot that the flower will really just like die. One hot wind just, you know, it's done. It's over. Like, and that's how it's going to be. It's like you're enjoying life. Eat, drink, be merry, have fun, enjoy your evil. Enjoy those, those sinful desires. Don't Who cares about sin? Who cares about God? And bam, justice comes. Justice comes. Look at this uh, portion of their cup. This last phrase he has in verse 6. Five, um, like all these things will be the portion of their cup. 
the head of a household. This language is like the head of a household. He pours each person in the house their portion or like their allowance. Right? Now, here's what he's saying in all of this verse 6. There is a reward laid up for the ungodly. The Lord will reach them with his wrath to drink. And this is not a cup set up for them to drink drop by drop. But this is a cup in which they will have to drink all of his wrath. In Ezekiel 23 has this language. He will drink it all. The wicked will drink the cup of God's wrath. But praise be to God that the cup that was due us, his people, Jesus took the cup and drank it on our behalf. As a matter of fact, yes, we are wicked, but in Christ we are righteous, right? He fulfilled righteousness in our place. And then this, all this is talking about the evil you deserve. I deserve. But instead of us getting that, Jesus drank it on our behalf for us, accomplishing your righteousness, paying your penalty, giving you eternal life, setting you free. And now God is your righteous righteousness. God is your refuge. Look at verse seven, though, as we just finish looking at this psalm. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. The upright shall behold his face. Third truth in, uh, in just kind of like the five through seven. Third truth. The first one is that by nature we're inclined to drift away from God. Second one is that God is sovereign, right? In the second part of the sermon or in the song. The last one is that God is righteous and he loves justice. Simple as that. And why is that good language? It's because what we just talked about, he is holy and we are wicked. But praise be to God for Jesus, right? So that's what, that's what that means, that God is righteous and he loves justice, right? So um, just like the language of this, for the Lord is righteous, he loves righteous deeds, the upright shall behold his face. Simply like the Lord is righteous and therefore he loves righteous deeds. The one who is righteous has a righteous and sovereign God as their refuge. Like God is righteous and he does everything that is right, including dying on your behalf and giving you eternal life. But this language that shall behold your face is like in the fall, like beholding God's face is like this perfect relationship with God and everything is right. In the fall, separated all creation from that. We don't get to behold his face. We don't get the safety that we once had or would have had, right? We're separated from the refuge, the only refuge that really exists, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But in Christ, the righteous behold his face. In God's mercy and in God's grace, which is Christ, we behold his face again. Think like I was just thinking over this, and think about this language like when you pick up fathers, mothers. I mean, I picked up a child, and it's the same thing, but I mean, just think about me, fathers and mothers, like you pick up your child and you hold them, Right? And they look at your face and they just kind of like, like touch your face like this and just kind of like, you know, it's like they're getting to know your face, like feeling your nose and, and like, you know, playing with your face. Like in Christ, we're in daddy's arms and we hold his face and we're safe. Like, we, like imagine holding your son. No one can take him from you. No one is ever going to hurt him if you have anything to do with it. And in daddy's arms, we behold his face. And nothing, like we read today in John, is going to change that. Nothing is going to take us away from daddy. 
from our Father, right? The Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. When you see that, all you see is your sin and your undeservingness. And you have to look at the gospel and say, I behold his face because he loves me. Justin says, it's not anything you've done to deserve it. There's nothing lovable in you. But because he loved you. Remember when he said that? There's nothing lovable in you. But because he loved you. He died in your place. He lived in your place, died in your place so that you, he could hold you. And you could be safe, so to speak. Why? For his glory. For your freedom. Praise be to God. And we get to behold his face. So just to go over the truths that we saw in this two parts of this sermon, this, this like increasing sense of despair and then this restoration of confidence in the Lord. Right. And we pulled out three truths. Just I want to remind you of these again right before we're just going to talk about two takeaways. Just two takeaways is that by nature, we're inclined to drift away from God. Whether it's just we don't have control of a situation, our feelings, our thoughts, whatever's happening, we're just naturally prone to drift away from him. But God is sovereign and God is righteous and he loves justice. And alone, those things seem kind of random, but I hope in the sermon it seemed like to make sense, right? So two takeaways, (laughs) two takeaways. As we are always tempted and inclined to fall into despair, we search for refuges. Right. In this case, David's like, I need to flee. Apparently, maybe a rock behind the cave would be my safety. Right. Or just going somewhere to the mountain is, is safer than than God. Right. This these things that cause us to drift away from God. And then we seek another refuge. Right. And we seek it two ways in the world or there's in Christ. Now, first takeaway, the world offers refuges that are temporary and ultimately lead to death. I'm going to put that in other words, the world offers no refuge at all. Because if a refuge is somewhere that's safe, if a refuge is, is some, something that like you can count on and depend on, that will keep you safe, that is in control maybe, the world has none of that. The world has temporary, and that breeds death, right? So in both these takeaways in the world and in Christ, we've got two ways, spiritually, forgiveness before God, and then physically, like we live in a world where we feel things and things happen and they matter, right? So spiritually, like two things happen. We think wrongly about God and we think wrongly about ourselves. And, and why I'm putting this in the world is that because we think wrongly about God, him not being holy, him uh, not being good, not being sovereign, not being a just judge, like we think wrongly about ourselves. Like if God is not holy, then what do I have to worry about? Or if if God is everything, right? I mean, whatever God tends to be without Christ, like it's because we naturally think wrongly about God. And that in turn in the world makes us think wrongly about ourselves or we don't seem that bad, right? We're really not that bad off. Like I've never done anything that's that horrible. I may have stole a pack of gum or something or like, like been mean to my brother, right? But in the end, like we haven't loved God the way he deserves to be loved, therefore we deserve hell. We deserve his wrath, right? So we think wrongly about God and we think wrongly about ourselves. And so um, if, if God is not our refuge, then we're going to find something that comforts us, right? We're going to, to search something. So in the world, there is, no, there is no refuge because basically God doesn't matter without Christ. Like God is of no use. 
maybe God's just some kind of therapeutic thing or God's just everything and you just enjoy life or like you, you hear what I'm saying? You hear what I'm saying here? Without like the truth of scripture, with God revealing himself, you have no refuge at all. You just got to eat, drink and be married. Like physically, like spiritually here is like, what do you mean forgiveness before God? That doesn't matter. That's what I mean by that. And then physically, like because the world offers no refuge, like when things go wrong and when things are totally horrible and when the world seems like it's falling apart, we have to run for some kind of rest. Like we're made to seek a refuge. Like we're made to find comfort. And so um, we're going to seek those things and, and the good things that God has given us, we're going to use them wrongly. Like money, like the pastoral address last week, like money, like power, control, whatever makes us happy. Maybe it's vacation, maybe it's retirement, like whatever it is, you're going to seek to find safety in those things. And they weren't created to give you what you were seeking out of it. It will always let you down. You will need more and there's never enough. Always. So we look, we look for it because we think wrongly like about God and about ourselves. We're going to seek it in this world. So we're going to look for things of this world or people in relationships and we're going to seek some kind of safety and some kind of like rest or some kind of like good vibes in the crappy world in the people around us and so then we're just really using them for ourselves right then everything that you see just becomes an opportunity for you to be pleased somehow because there's no hope you see what i'm saying the world offers no hope you end up using everything for your own selfish sake just because it offers no hope so in the world we're always being tempted and declined to fall into despair. And I mean, in the world, the world offers refuges that are temporary and ultimately lead to death. So that's takeaway number two. Or, and to say one more thing about that, as we know that, that like God doesn't exist or, or we just relativize everything and it's basically like, I can be good enough for forgiveness. Like, because I think wrongly about God, like, yeah, he's holy, but in the end, like his love is going to overcome my sin. Like, there doesn't have to be any legal declaration. There doesn't have to be any payment made or anything like that. Like, I'll be a good person and, and love people and just do my best. And at the end, hopefully God will forgive me, right? So that's also a temporary refuge, right? And ultimately leads to death. So takeaway number two, in Christ, refuge is eternal and it leads to life. In Christ, refuge is eternal and it leads to life. So we're going to look at the same thing spiritually and physically. Spiritually, we know that God is holy, that God is just, and he is the judge. And he will judge justly. Therefore, sinners must pay the price. And for, and for us in Christ, it has been paid, 100% paid, because Jesus lived in your place, and he paid the price in your place for you. And so now, in Christ, God moves from judge to father and now we're in father's hands we're no longer orphans but adopted right so in christ we have a refuge uh spiritually but also in a spiritual sense it's not just salvation like we've been justified it's also that we've been freed from this bondage of sin in this life now right so we're no longer just chained to to our desires and to our wants and to what we, what we feel and, and what we think and, and all wrapped up in us. We're set free from that, that flesh and we're able to live and love God and love people and be justified. 
right? So, and then physically. In Christ, God is a refuge for the weary Christian pilgrim. So, like, if you look at this psalm, like, of course, we look at our world and we can get really down and really bogged and, and really aggravated and, and really just wondering, like, what in the world is going on, God? Or even, even emotionally. Like, I'm always feeling things that I wish I didn't feel. Like, I'm always, like, fighting my emotions. They're always, like, they're kind of, like, always messing up things in my life because I don't feel the way I should feel or, or I don't feel the way I wish I would feel, you know? Or, or sometimes my emotions don't equal what the Bible tells me because I'm still in this body of death. Maybe you feel the same. And then spiritually, like, it's always this battle of faith and trust, right? And in Christ, we have a rest in those things. That, that yes, the world may be falling apart, but God is in control. And I am His. And I trust Him in that. And emotionally, yes, I don't feel the things I should. But I read Scripture and I know what's true. And so that just leads to, to just like in a, in a spiritual life that like this of faith and trust is that we go to God and know that it, we, we are, it's assured. I am good with God, completely in Christ. Because in Christ, we don't receive the wrath of God, but we behold his face. In Christ, brothers and sisters, you don't get what you deserve, but God did. He loves you so much that he lived perfectly for you. He earned righteousness on your behalf. Then he took the wrath that you deserved, right? And now we get to behold God's face. God is our refuge. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we praise you because we can trust you and you are good and you, your word is, is sure. And what you have done for us in Christ is sure. That you are truly a refuge for us. You're a refuge for sinners and you're a refuge for Christians on this weary journey. And so, Father, pray you, that you would encourage us with this this week, that you are our refuge, that you are a hiding place, that you're a place of safety, of, of warmth, of though everything falls apart, you're in control, you're on your throne, and that one day justice will be served. So we praise you in Jesus' name and for his sake, amen.